We want to take a second to thank you for supporting Womance by listening to our podcast. One great way that you can continue supporting us, including those listens, is hitting subscribe, telling a friend, leaving a review. That stuff all really matters. Sharing it on your personal social media is another great way to spread the word about Womance. And another option for supporting us, if we may be so bold, is to recommend going to our Patreon, where you can donate as little as a dollar a month to help us spread the word of woe. If you want to contribute more than a dollar a month, which obviously no pressure, whatever you've got, we are so appreciative to have, but we have awesome gifts for you. If you want a hand-addressed letter from Morgan and Isabeau, maybe with some special woe stickers, other merch, just uh, visit our Patreon. We are Womance on Patreon, or is it patreon.com forward slash Womance? We would be very proud to call you one of our patrons. I'm Morgan. I'm Isabeau. And this is Womance. A podcast about romance novels. About pre-Columbian Mesoamerican sex rituals. About solstice traditions. About museums, small town museums. About interrupted jewel thievery. (laughs) About being seen. About sexy security guards. But mostly it's about that first thing. Romance novels. And ourselves. So this week we are discussing a brand new release, as mean as in it just popped up in our Kindles this morning at 12 a.m., probably Eastern time. We are gonna talk about a short story from the 12 Naughty Days anthology. A steamy holiday romance anthology. Do you want me to read the back of the book? Yeah. And tell us what story we're going to discuss. Sure. So we read the very last one, The Twelfth Day of Christmas, as it were, 12 Drummers by Angelina M. Lopez. And so this is, there isn't really a back of the book for that. There's an author's note, but there is a back of the book for the anthology. So. On the first day of Christmas, my true love gave to me 12 naughty days. Cancel your plans because 12 of the hottest romance authors have teamed up to bring you a delicious holiday treat. A series of never-before-seen short stories inspired by the 12 days of Christmas. Each of the authors will have an unforgettable, steamy story set to one of the 12 days in the popular Christmas song. It'll be perfect for you to sink your teeth into this holiday season. Including original works by New York Times and USA Today best-selling authors K.A. Lind, Sky Warren, Fiona Cole, Nana Malone, Claire Contreras, Nikki Sloan, Gianna Darling, Sierra Simone, C.D. Reese, Laurelyn Page, M. Malone, and Angelina M. Lopez on sale for a very limited time at just $3.99. All proceeds benefit the suicide prevention and will be donated to the Trevor Project. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. So we actually found this anthology because Sierra Simone is involved. Uh, please listen to our very early episode on Priest. Uh, we did it first, folks. It's true. We did. So, like, I mean, <laughs> we did. all the others are just imitators and haters. 
That's right. That's right. But we decided to read Angelina M. Lopez's story because we tend to find that the best stories in an anthology are usually at the beginning or the end. I don't know if anyone read that this story and was like, this is the best one, so we'll put it at the end because it did have the 12 drummers drumming theme. And I think you're a little locked into your structure when you commit to something like this. Isabel, I'm wondering who hurt us? Because I spent so much time thinking like, wow, these short stories are so incredibly short. And so I'm wondering, what short story did we read that wasn't short? Because I'm starting to realize I've been overselling the shortness of the short stories a little bit. Well... I don't think it's a matter of hurting us, although I think you do bring up a good point. I think you and I have spent more time in Romance Landia's novella space than in the short story space. And novellas tend to run like 90-ish pages, which is much shorter than 350 to 450 of a traditional trade paperback. But not a short story does 90 pages make. And so you and I have, I think, for a couple of years at least, read uh, one or two novellas And I think we got used to that form. And then we met A Man of Taste, which was like what I would call a microfiction. So what is this story about? We open this story in an unnamed mid-sized Nebraska city, which means it has to be Lincoln because there are only two cities in all of Nebraska and one is mid-sized and one is large. (laughs) (laughs) What is the population of Omaha? For a while, they had the highest concentration of millionaires in the country. Because of Warren Buffett. That's where he's from. He made all his friends. Yeah, low tax rate out there. So I can see why billionaires would like it. You can save it up. Yeah. None of that <laughs> property tax we've got here. Right. So we open in midsize Lincoln, Nebraska at an art museum. <laughs> and the first line of the story is Sabrina Ram- Ramirez is invisible. And we find out that Sabrina Ramirez is indeed a false identity of one of the folks who cleans the museum at night. And she's actually quite a capable jewel thief. And that's how she makes her living, uh, going from midsize museum and small towns uh, that are put on by the Cokes. It sounds like a perfect crime, and I don't know why I was like, wow. Like, this sounds like a really captivating larger story, like a jewel thief who goes from mid-sized town to mid-sized town and steals jewels and then goes on, like, a big annual vacation and then comes back to steal jewels. So she finds herself after hours in the museum, in a carpeted museum, no less. Mm -hmm. That's how you know that it's a mid-sized town. Yeah. Uh, And... She's about to do her jewel thievery when she hears a percussive tick and she finds herself in the Mesoamerican section of the museum, which Isabeau, you know, my favorite section of ye old art museums. But uh, she sees a drum uh, and it's got two mallets and nobody's playing it, but it's making a percussive sound and it calls out to her. And she in turn calls out to security guard Juan Carlos with her drumming, not with her voice. Right. She picks up this gorgeous drum, starts drumming on it, like listens to the instinct, leaves her jewel thievery plans behind, which I also agree was a perfect crime. Mm -hmm. And then Juan Carlos shows up and is like, Sabrina, you got to get out of here. Also, like, what are you doing? And she's like, how do you even know my name? I'm going to keep playing this goddamn drum because it's magical and it's speaking to me. And then 
like the percussive music builds and builds and like Juan Carlos takes out the ponytail that's holding back his long glorious hair and then you know it's on yeah uh and he starts the drumming and then they are one by one surrounded by or like not actually one by one (laughs) one by two by three by four by eight no what I can't count starts with one and then it's two and then it's three and shadows begin to appear as Juan Carlos takes up the drum next to Anna and then Anna stops drumming because one of the shadow materializes as an Aztec warrior in full regalia and he just throws his hand down her pants yes and then a series of other shadows materialize so we started with one and then we get two others and then we get three and then we get four basically the math works out even if we don't understand it um what is a fiduciary like we did not start a romance novel podcast because of our aptitude for numbers Uh, but it does work out and not to give too much away but it is a group sex scene it's a communing with ancestors um a pre-columbian mesoamerican rite using what we would term today perhaps sex magic ck at the end and uh very very steamy this i realize it has been actually a long time since i've read a sierra simone level steam and I find that on book talk there are a lot of people who are like if you liked Priest by Sierra Simone because you're going through your flea bag era <laughs> then you should read which like being attracted to a handsome actor portraying a priest is not a personality trait <laughs> like I, I would say it like if people are like also because of like midnight mass they're like I have a priest kink and it's like no, like you're attracted to traditionally attractive people. Like maybe the the priest from Fleabag is like a little short and maybe his features are a little pinched, but uh That's true. You know, he's got that Elvin. Yeah, it's Elvin. Men can be attractive so much more easily than women can be physically That's attractive. That's true. And that guy like he also, I mean, not to get it too off topic, but that actor in particular cuz he was also the bad guy Moriarty in the Cumberbatch Sherlock. Mm-hmm. He like he's got one of those faces where he's like super charming, super attractive, or like he's literally possessed by Satan. Yeah. Like his eyes get really dark and terrifying. He's 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 got he's cheeky. Yes. Uh but anyways, it's not a personality trait, but like a lot of people will then be like, then you'll love these three steamy romance novels. And it's like inevitably stuff that's like not at the Simone level. Um, if you like this level of steam. You should discover Katrina Jackson as quickly as possible. But otherwise, like, it's, it's, I think when I, like, first embarked on this project, I thought it was all going to be that. Like, if it was a sexy book, it was going to be that. And it's weird to me how I've become desensitized to, like, pretty run-of-the-mill sex scenes. And not just run-of-the-mill in terms of, like, what's happening in them, like, the actual acts. But in terms of the descriptions. I think it's interesting that you consider yourself desensitized because I don't know that I feel like I'm desensitized. But like this is certainly something that blows me out of the water. Like this is this is like I haven't I haven't read this level in a really long time. And I like I think that's probably 
not necessarily unique to this author, but like unique to the spaces. Like you and I aren't in romantic erotica a ton. Yeah. Which could have pushed me over with a feather. (laughs) But then I was like, oh, yeah, like I actually read a lot of like supremely boring sex scenes. And I think we were actually talking about this with our last short story that we read where it's like it's, you know, pulling all the levers and pushing all the buttons. But the I guess the cream's in the Twinkie, but I'm not. It's not the same. Like, I would think the Twinkie is a good metaphor, right? Like. It's putting the cream in the Twinkie, but, like, this is, like, someone making, like, an eclair and, like, <laughs> slowly warming the shoe pastry and baking it and making a creme. Like, this is a this is a whole other level. And I think I forgot that this is, like, a very specific skill set and a very specific interest area. It's a feast. So I wonder, since you made that distinction that we're not in the romantic erotica realm a lot, what is – is there, like, a line where – you're you are now entering romance you are now exiting romance and entering romantic erotica is it butt stuff no and it's not necessarily group sex either although i think that lots of people would put that as a marker it can't be the signpost though no i'm trying to think like what makes it because i i think whatever boundary exists it exists much more clearly at the poles than it does in the middle is, is with all things. And so I'm trying to like, what what would push something just over the line? And then like, that's pretty hard for me to identify. Yeah. But one of like the hallmarks of erotic romance that is absent in regular romance is there's less character development. There's less dialogue. There are just more sex scenes in general. There's also like a variety of sex scenes in terms of like what kind of sex is being had who's doing what to whom there's just like more more salads at the buffet than there aren't and so I think it's like a different salad <laughs> there's like a lot of stuff in there and all of it tastes good it's just like salad. <laughs> It's a pasta salad. It's a seafood salad. It's like it's just oh my God, so many things. Salad. Not the seafood salad. There's so many salads. There's so many things. There's so many fluids. As opposed to coming up with a better metaphor, I'm glad that you've just like quadrupled down on how erotic romance is like a bigger salad bar. Yeah, it is. It's a way bigger salad bar. <laughs> bigger yep. salad bar. Yep. Well, you can get your hard-boiled eggs and your cheddar <laughs> cheese. No. <laughs> Not the salad bar eggs. <laughs> You might get a disease. You might not. Part of the joy. Also, I, I do feel like the smell of the salad bar eggs is apropos for Rod. It is. It, it plays much more strongly with fluids. <laughs> like there's not a shying away of fluids. Yeah. And I think in more traditional romance spaces, they don't. They're like, there's an acknowledgement of the wet spot in the bed. Very rarely. He toweled her off. Right. And there's no mention of like what he was toweling off or why. Totally. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, And so like erotica doesn't shy away from any of those parts of the body that like encounter and do sex. You know, I think what what 
you're kind of getting at here, what's kind of like making sense for me is a, a level of specificity in sexuality. Because like, I, I think it's true, like the majority of this story is a sex scene. And so it is taking up more real estate. But I also feel like it doesn't detract from like the character building in this short story is rich for 20 pages, let alone 20 pages of an erotic romance. Character building is rich. World building is, I mean, it was perfect. Uh, it was like you had just enough things, like you knew it was a mid-sized town in Nebraska's museum. You knew it was mm -hmm. a rarely visited part of the museum. You knew it had industrial carpet. And that for some reason, what I assume would be a very valuable artifact is not <laughs> in a case. It's kind of that gray part of January. It's the true 12th day of Christmas. And our characters' dreams and goals, their reasons for being in the space, their reasons for feeling the way they do are completely fleshed out. As the environment starts to change, like the aroma in the air of like what's basically burning resin, um, the muskiness. I loved that whenever we got to smell Juan Carlos it didn't say he smelled like man or it didn't say he smelled like a forest, right? It said he smelled like evergreen, but also things that are new and blooming, which is the same as saying like you smell like Timberline Old Spice, but it's a lot nicer. That's the thing I think a lot of people miss. I think they rely a lot on our own sense memory. And this book doesn't do that in its description. So it's like what's it, it gives you something evocative, like it smells like evergreens and things that are are newly growing from the soil. And that's something you can easily kind of hook into memory wise and feels meaningful for the character as well. And, you know, there there's not a ton of dialogue, but I think the dialogue that's in there is very meaningful. We don't head hop very much at all. We don't change perspectives very much at all. I don't think we change perspectives at all. I think we are rooted in Anna's. And what's so great about her is that she's incredibly observational. So she notices this thing about Juan Carlos where it's like there used to be a ring on his finger. And he like sometimes when he's thinking, she watches him finger the absence. Well, that's actually remembered from his perspective. No, it's her perspective. Will you check? Juan Carlos no longer wears his wedding ring, but his thumb still strokes over its absence in moments of forgetfulness. She wonders about the person who would let him go. Juan Carlos is dark-skinned and hook-nosed, strong and compact with black eyelashes as thick as a painter's brush. I thought it was in his own perspective, and I thought that that would say something about who he is and how he understands himself, but I don't know. Do we, Are we ever in his perspective? Not a once. No. Okay. But I think we don't need to be in her perspective because it her detailing was so rich that you thought we were there. Like, that's an incredibly effective narration. Like I said, I didn't miss being in Juan's per Juan Carlos's perspective because her observations of him were so acute. Right. She's, she's a jewel thief, so she has to be hyper aware while being invisible, which is something she's very keen on and repeats constantly but then she's also very interested in being seen and like Juan Carlos's constant attunement on her as she embodies um the priestess or the goddess for the ritual is something that's enlivening for her although like it's hard to say like you know whenever you're taking into account something like super 
magical and mystical how much autonomy or thought can actually be accredited to what's happening. That's a good point that I literally didn't think about until this moment. Because she is definitely possessed yeah. by the goddess. Yeah. That's a, that's a good question about what consent looks like when one is being possessed by an ancient deity. One of the things I read about Mesoamerican pre-Columbian faiths in general is that goddess can be a bit of a misnomer because it's kind of an application of how Western minds understood kind of like a, a faith. Faith as in cannot see or touch but understand its truth kind of other faith-based traditions. <laughs> I, I just learned that the Yucatan Peninsula translates into I don't know what you're saying because <laughs> when uh, Spain landed, they like found the Yucatan people on the Yuc what we now know as the Yucatan people on the Yucatan Peninsula and said, what are you called repeatedly in Spanish? They had never heard Spanish, so they just kept saying, I don't know what you're saying. And it's just now in like the early 2000s that we've translated the language that was spoken there and understand that what they were actually saying. Yeah, it's like the Sahara is a Swahili word for desert. So then it's the desert desert. Yeah. And like chai is tea. So then it's tea tea. At first I was like confused. I was like, why would this ritual be happening around Christmas time? And then I was like, so then I Googled it. And then I was like, oh yeah, duh. The winter solstice is understood <laughs> across the world. And uh, I found some actual like one for one uh like lots and lots of winter solstice, solstice, obviously, festivals and rituals that were uh, practiced in pre-Columbia Mesoamerica. I didn't find one that specifically revolved around um, group sex and getting uh, sex fluids onto a drum, but I'm glad it happened here. I'm glad it happened here. And so when Anna first encounters the drum that's beating in her chest and isn't in a case... She can see that it's been fractured and that it's like almost breaking apart, like the resin won't hold it together anymore. And so part of what the group sex ritual is about is like pulling the drum back together. And I didn't like I actually kind of really loved that. I didn't hate it. Um, it reminded me of this thing that the British Museum has done recently where it's like they don't want people to wear gloves on old manuscripts because they want the oils to get into the papers because they find that especially on very old parchment, they need the oils, otherwise they become dry and brittle. And it's this whole thing about like some objects really do need to be handled. They're meant to be handled. They want to be handled to last longer. Um, and so yeah. the idea that you have like this magic drum is seeking out a magical way for it to continue to exist, I thought was like a lovely discussion about like the materiality of things. Um, not that I never, you know, thought I would encounter uh ghost drum warrior ejaculating all over a drum but like you know what here for it <laughs> <laughs> I think that's so interesting that the British Museum is having this like really progressive consideration of like what artifacts are and how we can actually do better work for preserving them while still managing to hoard them like Smaug on his gold mound instead of returning them <laughs> to the people that they belong to. That's also something I was thinking about, like the setting of this, like this abundance of artifacts that we have. And we have 
so many of them that they can be collected and displayed and also back cataloged in Lincoln, Nebraska, which is a pretty remote part of the United States. How long of a drive would it be, I wonder, from Lincoln to New York City? Oh, shit. A long ass drive. I'm going to look it up because (laughs) I'm thinking about that joke in Spinal Tap where he's like trying to get his he's English he's trying to get his girlfriend to come visit him on his U.S. tour and he's like why don't you just they're in New York and he's like just fly into New York and take a take the subway to Ann Arbor (laughs) or something like that it's a good joke uh I actually have a friend from Nebraska who lives in New York should have just texted her uh, it's a it's a 20-hour drive. So it's a pretty, you know, like we said, remote part of the United States. Isabeau and I, if you don't know, are from an equally remote, if not more so, part of the United States, right below that one. There's also the book, The Story, makes lots of important points about the invisibility of brown people in this museum that is reflected in the invisibility of the cultural history of brown people in what's now known as the United States. And that this connection is restorative for for both, this like understanding of, of a cultural history. And I think it's so fucking keen that like you take this pretty Christian-centric concept of the 12 days of Christmas, right? Uh, and it's being a part of an anthology with that theme and then being able to cleverly but not shoehorn in a different cultural tradition that's kind of a subtle critique. And it's all – and once again, like this story occupies just like 20 pages of this anthology. And it is restorative. Sex magic, absolutely. But what you said about the invisibility, like there's this – because the way that she sets up her jewel heist, she becomes one of the museum cleaners and most of the other cleaners are Latinx women and are all equally invisible to the patrons and like the museum, like other staff, like the curators and stuff. And she like has this thought where she like thinks about how hardworking and invisible these women are and like how invisible their labor is. And then the third group to come out of the shadows is like this group of priestess women and she sees them almost like through a double lens as like the women that she's worked with and suddenly like these women who are here to worship her body and she is there to worship their bodies they devour each other in this like divine feminine about like what it could be to maneuver labor towards each Mm -hmm. other rather than to like a project like the museum it was Keen is very good. I think it. This is a incisive erotic romance that has a lot to say about the ways in which we paper over crime, and some of those crimes are just like wage theft. Yeah, I was like, I don't know if it talks about wage theft in a particular way, but certainly like the implication of like cultural and and literal genocide in the case of the um, Mesoamerican peoples. Uh, who are Indigenous Americans. I want to know what you think about the resolution. And I don't know if this is going to get into your sexiest part or maybe even your weirdest part. So maybe we should go there first. Maybe we should visit those those puddles. <laughs> okay. Morgan, what was your sexiest part? My sexiest part 
The point at which I felt the most titillated was after she has her she has her first encounter and then you realize that this is going to continue on with larger and larger groups of people while this hero doesn't really participate in a really active way and that was very exciting because it's nothing I've read in romance before and I thought it was interesting that after this kind of like our first encounter is with this like single male presence singular male presence and very assertive very dominant very you can trust me like nothing gets everything is very carefully communicated as consensual and like asking for consent is is communicated via body language very clearly in this text but without being annoying sorry I shouldn't say annoying Sometimes it can be bogging us. Yeah, sometimes it can be annoying the way people write those things. It gets like so fucking preachy, doofusy, dare I say it, virtue signally. You know how like Kathleen Widowis wrote that an orgasm feels like a holocaust of emotion, and we were like, oh no. Sometimes these people write about consent, and I'm like, I don't think you've ever had an actual sexual encounter where like consent was central. This it's very much like theory versus practice. Yeah, exactly, exactly. This felt very practicable. Anyway, so we have this like first singular. The second encounter is with two super youthful men and it made me really nervous. And then as they're having having sex, one of them starts fellating the other man and I was like, this this that like second encounter I was like, this book is what? This story's doing it all. I got really excited and I think like my favorite sex scene was probably the last one with the most people because it's most they like put oil on her and she has like a lot of hands massaging her and I think that goes back to tentacle porn being super understandable who doesn't want lots of hugs and lots of kisses all at once but I the point at which I was like vibrating I was like oh my god (laughs) Was that second encounter. I too vibrated in that moment because not only does he start fellating the other guy, but he's like working between their, like her vagina and his penis and just like, he's like going at both of them. <laughs> and I was like, A, I 100% did not expect that. I would say like, I was mostly surprised by every sex scene. Like I was just like, I just walked into each one like, what are we going to do next? (laughs) Um. Yeah, it's true. I feel so bad. I feel like I'm giving it away. This, This feels like the most guiltfully spoilery episode we've ever done. But I feel like maybe there are people who like have read her other books or like are spend more time in this genre who are better prepared than us. And here's the other thing about that second encounter is that it feels the most precarious because of who is a part of it. And it just starting off with like the familiar romance sex scene and then transitioning it to the dangerous romance sex scene that's also pretty typical as far as like the energy that's coming into it and then being able to stick the landing on it in a way that like appreciates that like vivacity and changeability without making it feel threatening or like assuaging anything about it that feels threatening i would say who hurt me but 
Her name is uh, Joanna Lindsay. Uh, she's the one who hurt me for those particular sex scenes. <laughs> Not Angelina Lopez. Uh, that it, It's so perfectly done that you can feel like you can really feel comfortable like losing yourself in the rest of the text. Absolutely. And there were some safeguards because like, again, these two very youthful young men come at her quite violently. They like begin ripping at her clothes and she has to stop them before they pop the seams of her dress or her shirt and her pants. And there's this moment because, of course, our titular male uh main character Juan Carlos is still there drumming and he locks eyes with her and he's like you okay and so like even just having that pause where there's like an outside potential intervention here like she's not going to be hurt then allowed the scene to like you know pump the brakes ever so slightly because it's not like these two eager young men ever become less eager to be all over her and all over each other and like they went from like predatory to like puppies and like that change holy fucking shit wow but that also gets at my weirdest part sure which is that juan carlos's presence is meant to be what is both a mediating and also very masculine presence within this ceremony he'll be able to jump in and intervene on her behalf with any of these like mystical beings, which I kind of highly doubt. But, and and, like the other thing is, is like at the end of the day, like he's just a guy. Like he gets the most titillated by the um, three women having sex with a woman, right? Like he's less titillated by the other men um, who are present. Uh, it made me think of It Follows, where the woman has this thing following her, and it's, you know, in order to get it to stop following her, her very well-meaning guy friend is like, I'll have sex with you, and I will carry this burden, and we'll figure it out once it, you know, directs its attentions towards me. And then, like, the whole thing is like, why would you ever think that you could defeat something supernatural? Like, that is so beyond any capacity. And so I, like, it just felt kind of silly. And, like, the denouement, like, the idea that he would be able to intervene on her behalf, like, it's part, maybe it's part of the ritual, but there was something so, like, this felt like it it was so transcendent, but it needed to have this anchor, and I was ready to go into the fucking stratosphere, Right. So the tether wasn't that uh, pleasurable to me. My idea would be like these supernatural beings would never hurt me because I'm a part of this. So I'm in it, you know, as opposed to like regular check ins with the security guard. The recently divorced super hot security guard. I would just say recently. I mean, like recently divorced is (laughs) is another way of describing it. It's like he has he has a gun and he has this like security position at the museum and there's just so much like traditional cis maleness wrapped up in it I don't know I just I just wish there was like a little bit less of that that was my weirdest part because it's like this incredible normie thing in this cosmic (laughs) short story I get that 
He's a total normie. He works the night shift so that he can do school during the day. And like, she even has this line where like, his dreams are bigger than mine have ever been. And I'm like, babe, you jewel thieving and having like an annual super long five-star vacation on the jewels that you heist. Like, what do you mean his dreams are bigger than yours? Like, what? I know. It's kind of like one of those things where you meet a super successful person and they're like, what about you? I love that you're a teacher. It's like, oh, thank you. (laughs) I feel both insulted and smaller now. Thank you. Um, Yeah, so I get that. What, do you want to start with your sex? I'm sorry. Why are you sorry? We like. I just. Oh. I feel like I wasn't giving you time to respond. No, of course you were. That was totally fine. I can see why that would be a weirdest part. My weirdest part wasn't that. It was definitely the priest group <laughs> sex scene, at the, which is the 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 scene, the sex scene at the top <laughs> of the hill before we get to the normie sex scene that like culminates this whole thing. I was like, like I said earlier, I was entirely surprised with each new person who arrived in the carpeted Mesoamerican part of the <laughs> art museum, and. <laughs> The priests themselves were great because they were really well defined. You had an older one who was sort of in charge of the other three. You had a very young one. And then you had... If they were Catholic, this would be an exorcism. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And so, like, again, I felt like... It was, it's a very weird experience to feel like I know the pieces, except they do not go at all where I expect them. And that was true of this group scene. And I'm like, I'm trying to be an adult about it, but like, I'm finding it rather difficult. First of all, you keep saying priests, and it's evocative of a very specific reference. And I'm wondering what your picture, like, are you picturing like the people described in the book or is part of you imagining them, but with like little white collars? No, I'm envisioning what was described in the book, just like extremely holy men who are about to engage in a sex rite. Yeah. Except the the first part of the scene is that she, like, begins uh, felicitating the older priest. And I was just like, oh, I didn't even catch that. Yeah. And, like, it's like, okay. And then, like, and then there are all these hands all over her with oil. And then they put her on the youngest priest. And then they're, like, massaging more oil. And, like, then they're, like, at her butt. And then there's a... It's so funny. Listeners can't see this, but Isabel's been doing this funny, like, rolling gesture with her hands to describe massaging, and then she hooked her pinky. It's like, you, like they massaged her butt <laughs> while she's leading the oldest priest. And I'm just like, I just, I know I got stuck on it, and I know it's, like, a petty thing where I was just like, because, like, when he shows up and she's like, he's the oldest, he's like... I didn't envision him as, like, wizened or anything. I just sort of, like, (laughs) just, like, older than her, but, like, you know, gray at the temples. And then you've got all these, like, young, hot bucks around. I'm just like, why are you filleting this old dick? It's like an an elder thing. Yeah, but, like, I didn't love that either. (laughs) It's weird to interpret it that way I like like either way I was like I don't I like this was that was the part that like I found myself stumbling over the most uh-huh um inside this 
uh, group sex scene. Why do you think that is? Because I know you said like, you know, you you feel weird about the older guy, but like what's... I think it's because like in the text itself, he felt a little like fatherly when he first arrived. Oh, God. Yeah. And so like I like there was like a paternalism to that particular masculine energy that was absent from the other masculine energies in the story, which I was like not into. I did not pick up on that. But it's definitely going to fuck me up if I return. Also, like, that's, like, entirely what I brought. So, like, you know, like. Yeah. (laughs) There's so many levels to this conversation where it's, like, like, there are a lot of things that are, like, oh, I don't like the thing that you, like, the thing that you enjoyed makes me feel weird, right? Like, there's a a lot of different paths that can go down without being, like, oh, oh, now I can't enjoy it. But being like, I felt like the guy getting filleted was a father figure is pretty hard to recover from. But then there's also the level of like talking to someone who had a completely different interpretation of a scene than you. And it's because they interpreted a fatherly presence. <laughs> it's like it's not like it, there's nothing in the I don't think there's anything in the text that calls him fatherly. I think it's really just like he's older and wizened. So like I brought like whatever's inside of yeah, me brought yeah. that. Yeah, exactly. That's 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 wild. Yeah, wasn't into it. But I think it was also because of the comparison of the masculine energies. Like the first one is like stoic and incredibly alpha. And like, as you said, really familiar. And then you had these like two potentially violent, extremely vivacious young men. And then you had the three like sort of calm down ladies. Um, Not that that scene was calm. And then you just had like four very holy men in some sort of like hierarchy. I was just like not prepared for the last male energy, I don't think. Yeah. Well, I'm very curious to know what your sexiest part was. All of it? Like, it's actually very difficult for, like, because even while I was, like, not into the fellating part, I was into all the other hands and, like, mouths and, like, stuff going on in the tentacle scene. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Like, I'm not going to say that I wasn't titillated because obviously I was and, like, totally get it. Um. I think my least sexy part was the one with the two dudes. Maybe like my absolute sexiest part was like that scene of um, bodily consent when she like begins to withdraw it from the first entity and like he bites her on the cheek, but like stops what he's doing. Um, I thought that was very sexy. And then she's like back into it. It said like a stallion calming a mare. It's a very specific reference. Um, and also true. Animals bite each other a lot to get submission. I, I, I was expecting you to choose the very last, the, the compassionate missionary <laughs> sex. That <laughs> No. Also, she should have been on top. I don't understand why she wasn't. Maybe that's my weirdest part. Like, the fact that it was in missionary and she had her legs around his waist. I was like, what the fuck? There's a lot going on that's, like, a lot of people really enjoy it. And I also think there's, like, a lot going on here about, like, masculine and feminine energies that 
ascribes those energies to masculine and feminine bodies. And so I also think the fact that she was so self-possessed in all of these other sex scenes may have necessitated and he was very self-restrained in all of throughout the rest of that this like idea of him being like the 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 god not energetic and not like assertive but the the piston (laughs) like you know what Mm -hmm. i mean like i don't want to like being on top like right as as much as it can be like literal it can also be a metaphor so i think like that felt like the right move in the like it's also very much like a bell curve like ratcheting up and then we have this like kind of peak scene that's with these women that's letting you know we're now on the denouement um which is really interesting there's probably a lot to be said about that as far as like you know what I, I don't know I guess like part of me wants to be like oh that's also a weird part but another part of me is being like I don't know like you read it as like pitch and tone rather than like a a gender and sex role type thing when you read it because of how it's written even though it's you know cis women's bodies and like cis men's bodies it's not like it's uh it doesn't feel the way those books written in the culture wars feel where it's like his masculine hands right and that's like goes back to the smell of evergreens right it doesn't say he smells like man and there's been there are lots of places in this book where it could have been like he smelled like man also describe <laughs> doesn't say that a woman's uh vulva tastes like purple which makes it uh takes it up a notch than some of the previous Christmas short stories we've read for this show. Yeah, that's it. And like every sex act ends with fluids on the drum. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In different ways. So like there was no shying away from that or like making it euphemistic. Which I think, it, but it's also like it it doesn't like lose any kind of like poetry or like floridness with that kind of literalization. It all reads the same. I think, yeah, absolutely. Like, I think there's something potentially lost in the idea that, like, the messiness of sex, the the things that you need to use to make it more comfortable in different positions or different sex acts, like, the idea that we would euphemistically hide those things away, like, this story totally shows, like, why you don't have to do that in the hands of a skilled author, like, why fluids can be just as sexy as anything else, like a diaphanous nightgown. Yeah, it looks like Angelina M. Lopez has mostly written like contemporaries and they look kind of, you know, I would love to read more of her work in this kind of like cosmic space. (laughs) Yeah, totally. Although I'd love to read more of her books in general. I consider this to be a romance. As do I. Absolutely. There was not a second that I didn't enjoy in some facet, even as I was faced with my own hangups. Yeah, it also did the thing that I think we were kind of missing in the last story we talked about where it it gave you lots of like terms you could google, right? Mm-hmm. So it's not going into like a ton of exposition, you know, about the history and culture, right? 
it's giving you terms and even without googling it like you have references to help you like understand what's going on like there's a lot of smoke in the room and things like Mm -hmm. that but at the same time you learn so much while people are having sex Uh, (laughs) which is you know rich and and captivating and I also I kind of like the 12th day of Christmas is post Christmas uh but at So I think it's kind of nice that there's a story that realizes, like, that's seasonal without being Mm -hmm. Christmassy. I agree. It's great. Any any other thoughts or feelings? Guess we have to put Angelina Lopez on our list. Yeah, I'll definitely put it on my personal list. Um, With that. Loosen your stays. But never your principles. Woli guacamole, everyone. Thanks for listening to another episode of Womance. Womance is hosted, produced, and edited by my friend Morgan. And by my friend Isabel. Our logo artwork is by another friend, Mary Reichman. You can find her on Instagram at m.reichman, spelled R-E-I-S-C-H-M-A-N-N. Original music by Nick Gravelin. And our webmistress is Jane Bonzak. They're the best. You're also the best. We so appreciate your support by listening. Please consider taking this to the next level by following, rating, and reviewing. We read every single review. Or even check us out on Patreon. If you'd like more woe in your life, you can connect with us on Instagram at womance and on Twitter where we are at mans underscore woe. Or you can find more episodes and content at womancepodcast.com. If you have an idea or just want to reach out, please email womancemail at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Womance is a part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts to add to your romance collection at frolic.media backslash podcasts. Until next time. <laughs>